This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, all our Torah Anytime viewers. Okay, so today we are continuing on the uh, on the topic of proving that the Torah is is uh, divine. The last oh, well, it was two weeks ago. It was two weeks ago. Last week we missed it. Two weeks ago we spoke about the Har Sinai. We spoke about the proof of the validation that when we got the Torah on Har Sinai through Moshe to the Jewish people from God, got all the parts right, this was a uh, such a unique event that it would never occur again in the history of the world to date. Now, I, I do want to go and do a quick recap on last week. I usually don't. The reason why I need to do this uh, this week is for two reasons. Number one, is because it's sort of a continuation, so whoever didn't listen, they'll have a, an understanding of it. Number two is because it was very complex, and I saw a lot of blank faces. And I actually, before I uploaded it, I sent it to a few people, and I said, listen to it. Is this clear? Do I have to redo it? Is it something to understand? So, you know, I don't know if they said, okay, it's good because they like me, or they're my family, which they were, um, or other reasons. But, um, but for all, you know, purposes, I, I think it is very important to review it because it is it is extremely, extremely important. And the reason why it's so important is that when you're dealing with something, the stronger the foundation it is, the better off that you are. Think of this as really a, a relationship, a relationship between a husband and wife. If you have a really strong foundation, a really strong relationship in the foundation aspect of it, then you'll be able to, to accomplish anything. If your foundation is very weak and shaky and, you know, you sort of got married because you got, like, older and you're like, all right, listen, you're 30, I'm 35, let's just do this, you know. And, and you know, so it's like, that's not really a strong marriage-building, you know, foundation. Uh, now, not to say that they can't build a stronger foundation at a later given point in time, but it, it, when you, you have a really strong foundation, you're able to accomplish a lot. And I'll, t- I'll explain it like this. There are therapists, I don't know about all of them, but there are many of them, the good ones at least, when they're going through marriage therapy, right? when the couple comes from the marriage, uh, marriage therapist for marriage therapy, what they try to do, or at least what some of them try to do, is they're, they're very much unhappy now, right? To go to mar- to, into therapy, that, that comes to a point that you're obviously not happy in the relationship. So what the therapist tries to do, and what they should try to do, is try to bring them back to a point where they were once happy with each other, where they once loved each other, where they once were so infatuated with each other, they wanted to do anything for each other. The idea is to bring them back to a certain point, and where that point usually lies, it's usually in the foundation, uh, you know, a laying of the relationship. So, when you look at the foundation of Judaism, the foundation of Judaism is when God gave the Torah to the Jewish people. It's literally the, you know, where the start of whole, the whole Jewish nation came. So if this is a very, very, if you have a very, very strong foundation, then you're able to build on it. But if you're like, I don't know, is it a strong, did it really happen? Maybe everyone was on drugs, it was really good, you know, there was a really good distributor at that point in time, right? Al-Jariz, Al-Habi, you know, I don't know, is that an Egyptian name? I don't know Egyptian names. We're assuming some Egyptian drug dealer, right? He went and he was able, Colombia was too far. So he, assuming that he was able to go and give everybody and everybody was on a super high, you could go and start having excuses on different variations of what really happened and then say, you know what, maybe it didn't happen. But if you have a very strong foundation, if you believe, not if you believe, if you know that it happened for certain, that Hasinai, God gave the Jewish, the Jewish people the Torah, then you have something to build on. So that's why I think it's very important. So that's why I want to do a quick uh, recap on it. Number one, the one of the main uh, main points, uh, uh, you know, of this argument is that Judaism is unique to every single other religion. In that every single other religion started off with one or two people being the 
prophet, the eyewitness, you know, God spoke to me, God dealt with me. When you're dealing with the Jewish nation, you're talking about everybody. Like, who witnessed this? Everybody witnesses. So you're talking about roughly about 3 million people witnessed the event when God spoke to Moses through and, and, through, and through the Jewish people, especially if you, you know, the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments were spoken directly to the Jewish people. They, everybody heard God speak. Everybody saw, you know, they, they were witnessing the entire event. Now, when you're dealing with validating a ancient history, current history, doesn't matter. The more eyewitnesses that you have, the stronger that your proof is. Think about a, I don't know, murder trial, let's say. Right? So you have a murder trial. And if you have one eyewitness, that's very good. That's very strong. But imagine you have 10 eyewitnesses. That makes your claim much stronger. If you have 100 the more eyewitnesses that you have, the stronger the claim that you have. Think of it in, in, in this in religion. The more eyewitnesses that were there and were observed and were able to say, yeah, God gave the... His holy book to this type of people, because we were there, we saw it. The more that you have, the stronger the foundation. The, and we went last week, and I'm not going to go through all the details. We went last week through every single different variation of a possibility of maybe it was made up this way. Maybe it was made up this way. Maybe it was made up this way. And we refuted all of them to show the, the validity of the Torah. Some of the ideas that we did speak about is, number one, is the bigger the event, the less likely you are to forget about it. So no one can come and say, hey, this happened to you but you forgot about it. Or this happened to your ancestors, but you forgot about it. The more crazier the event, and the example that we gave before, I think was skydiving into dolphins or whatever it was. If not here, I give it to somewhere else. Uh, but, but think of this, this idea. If, let's say you go, and one time you went skydiving, right? Because you don't have appreciation for your life, whatever it is. Um, and you want to go skydiving. I'm just kidding. You, you know, forever, all those skydivers out there, you know, enjoy. Happens to me when I was 16 years old, I wanted to go skydiving so badly, and my parents wouldn't let me. Now, if you would offer me, you know, skydiving with a pride, I wouldn't do it. I have too much to lose. I guess back then I didn't have anything to lose. You know, I was a single, uh, you know, teenage guy. Uh, but, you know, when you, you know, when you appreciate life, you don't want to take risks. It is an interesting question, though. I don't know why we're speaking about skydiving, um, but it is an interesting question because if you think about it, you're not allowed to put yourself at, at risk. You're not allowed to put yourself at risk. If you do and you get saved, it is very possible that you're pulling from your merits in the next world to save yourself from this world. And that's very, I mean, when I was younger, um, I've never told you my life story, I probably will never, but, um, the, you know, I was, I was a little bit on the wild side of, you know, I would do very, very crazy things and stunts and all those things. I would walk on like six floors on the ledge. Uh, you know, I would do, I would do ridiculous things. And, you know, I felt a rush, felt a lie, you know, it was like, whatever, I don't know, I was crazy and stupid and, you know, young. Uh, but, but, it's, but people that do these type of things, you have to think about it because you're, you could be using up your merits. God is saving you, but it's okay, listen, you, you know, you're doing dumb things, you're going to die, you know, so let me do this, you know, let me pull from this merit and this merit so that I can save you. So let's say somebody goes and goes skydiving. Skydiving is not allowed. It's allowed. If it's, if it's, congratulations. I'm not saying it's not allowed. I'm not saying a lot. I'm not just saying it might not be the smartest thing. I, I don't know. Whatever. Um, totally safe. Is it totally safe? Yeah. I don't know. You know they say now, they say like you could, you know, it's more likely to die in a car accident than, you know, anything. definitely in Brooklyn. But I don't know about, uh, you know, other places. You know, you like, it's, it's like flying. I think it's what they say about flying. Flying an airplane is like safer than like crossing a street or something like that. I don't know. Or driving in a car. Whatever it is. The... Um, you know, yes, when you think about statistics like that, but if you know anything about math and anything about logic, then there are some things that would come into factor in that would say like, well, maybe bungee jumping like, hey, you want to jump off a bridge holding by a rubber band? Maybe that's not the best idea all the time, uh, you know, to do that. 
you know, and, and you know why people do this? They do this because it's a thrill of like almost dying, and like, and then it's like, oh, I'm still alive, so I guess I can appreciate life for a little bit longer. Um, it's, it's, um, and I, not not you uh, personally, everybody else, um, just everybody but the people in this room and listening online and know people and have family members that did it or heard of somebody that possibly did it. Uh, I'm obviously speaking about the the rest of the world. So. No, but the idea is, it's very interesting because, because when you think about it, you're not allowed to put yourself in danger. You have to guard your, your souls. Now, when you think about it, jumping off a bridge, holding onto a string, you know, is, it, I've seen the uh-oh moments of those things. You know, where like, they jump, but the string snaps. They jump, but then it wasn't so tight, the, the, the cord. So the string was strong, you know, the rubber string, what, what, I don't know what it's called. Um, I like call it rubber band, because I don't know, you know, whatever it was, wasn't so strong. So um, the spring bounced back up, but, but they kept on going down. So, uh, you know, and again, do you have to sign a waiver, like, if you die, you won't sue us? I mean, like, I, mean, I don't know, you, maybe your parents, I don't know. Oh, really? Interesting. Anywhere where you have to sign a something, like, you know, like, don't, you know, you're not... Oh really? Rock climbing makes sense. What? Shooting. Shooting? Well, shooting in a in a. I mean, I don't know where you're going shooting, but if you're shooting in a in a shooting range, that that should be pretty safe. It really depends on your neighbor, not really you. Um, you know, if you're going in, you know, southern, you know, I don't know, Texas, and be like, you know, you hear someone go, yeah, you know, I say he he's like, I brought my own guns, you know. He comes in over there, he says, make Trump great again or whatever, make America great again, right? In his hat. And, you know, he sees a dark tan person over there. It might be a good idea to leave. I, I, you know, I don't know. Whatever. It's my personal device. But in any case, moving back to Judaism. Um, how did we even get... Where was I talking? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh skydiving. Skydiving. What? Skydiving. So imagine you go skydiving, but it's not just a regular skydiving. You skydive into a pool of dolphins, and you don't even land. The dolphins are waiting for you. Have you ever swam with dolphins? You've probably swam with dolphins. Okay. Um, all right. So I was a guess. I didn't know that. Okay. So assuming you swam with dolphins, there is a thing that you could swim next to behind two dolphins, and you're sort of like, I don't know, you're standing up on their backs, and they just like... They, you know, like surfing, they just do their ee thing, you know, they do their swimming thing, and you're standing over there. So imagine you parachute directly onto their backs, and they just like cruise you onto shore, you know, slowly. Um, and, you know, you're doing that while, you know, I don't know, drinking a beer and, you know, doing a crossword puzzle at the same point in time. Now, that's not something that you're going to forget, right? That's something that you'll probably remember for at least six days, right? Um, and, you know, because uh, Americans have short-term memories, we all know about this, right? This is why they had these videos, I forgot what they're called, that were created, only six seconds long, or seven seconds long. I'm like, I can't understand the the vines, but whatever, whatever it is, I can't understand, like, people have such AD, seven seconds? Really? I mean, I, I, what I, from what I hear, it closed down, it didn't, it wasn't successful, but the fact that it was successful, just such a long period of time, how much of a short attention span do you have to have that you cannot last seven seconds without what you know how bad that is you know how terrible that is i mean I, i'm telling you like the, you know the 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 way that we have it you know why why youtube is so successful because people have add people don't watch five minutes forget about an hour class you know on youtube i mean maybe some of them do in kazakabu for everybody who does but in generally you watch 45 seconds and then you have on the what's the, the recommended for you possibly you like i don't know what it's called right on the side your wish list you go on the side and be like, well, maybe you'll like this. Be like, maybe I would like this. And you click on this, 
And what happens, so every time you see another ad, another ad, another ad, and you keep on like scrolling back and forth into these things. Meanwhile, you haven't watched anything, and it's 16 hours later. You don't know where you are. You're lost. You're, you're confused. You're hungry. You're, you know, it's, it's like, it really is an addiction, by the way. But that's for a different class. Okay, let's try to go on topic. Guys, please, come on. All right? It's, it's not good. Okay, so... Speaking back about Judaism, the greater the event, the more significant the event, the less likely you are to forget about it. Can there be, an, if you can think about anything possibly greater than having a revelation from God, not just you one on like, you know, uno al uno, mano al mano, I don't know Spanish, whatever, I don't know why I started this, uh, but I'm ready here, right? Uh, you know, so while, not like a, a private conversation, a whole group of people. A tremendous group of people. Three million people are there conversing, you know, with God. And that's not something you forget. So, it's very, very unlikely that somebody, somehow, this scenario never happened. And we say that it happened. Because even if you say that it it never happened, and some guy came along and said, Hey, (laughs) you guys forgot a really big, interesting thing. You guys are the chosen people. And God spoke to you, all of you. And I don't know why everyone forgot it, but everyone forgot it except for me. Um, and now I'm here to remind you. That's very unlikely because you don't forget such a thing. Not you, not your ancestors, not your great ancestors. If you have, you know how like every mother tells every child ever, you're the most special thing to me. I mean, every, every normal parent tells every, you know, let's just say that every, every parent, every parent tells a child, right? You're the most special thing to me. You're unbelievable. And they want to say how special you are. Now imagine a family is from, let's say, a rabbinic origin or something like that. They're constantly bringing that up, right? Do you know who your family is? Do you know who it is? You know, they're constantly bringing it up, and rightfully so. Would you not think that they would bring something up if, like, your granddaddy, you know, spoke to God? You know, wouldn't that be something that would be brought up? The fact that, that somebody can claim that it was never happened and you're making it up is so unlikely that it doesn't make any sense. Why does it make any sense? Because we never see a parallel story like this in history. If we know history repeats itself, why you know the the reason why historians are, you know should be sought after, which they're not, is because history repeats itself. If you know history, you can already see what's going to happen. So it never happened before, which means is that the only way that it could have happened is if actually it did happen. And we spoke about it last week. We're not going to go into all these things. Numerous times in the Torah it speaks about it. It says, don't forget what you saw. This, I am creating this treaty between me and you. It's God literally speaking to the people that left Egypt, that left, that, that, uh, that received the Torah. The, the idea is also, is, and this we didn't speak about last week. We should have, but we didn't. Rav Sadia Gon in Munot Vedeot, Ma'amal Shlishi Ot Vav, speaks about, that is a, um, in a separate road called Beliefs and Opinions. He said that a report can be misunderstood or misrepresented in two ways. Number one, if it was a mistaken understanding, which means is that I tell you something, you have no clue what I'm saying, but you nod in agreement like you know what I'm saying, right? You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Everyone's nodding, you know what I'm talking about. No, I'm just kidding. Um, you, know how, you know how you know these, these things. Um, so I speak a lot in different places, so I, I, get to, I get to see that, but not everybody gets to see that, but you... You ever have this thing when you're like saying something where you know the person does no clue what you're talking about? I mean, you're a woman, so you probably get this more when you're speaking to men. Um, and what do they do? They're just like smiling and nodding and, you know, like in a very blank look and be like, yeah, sure. You know, like, so they obviously didn't understand. They didn't comprehend. El comprendo, right? We're going to go Spanish today, right? Um, and it's going to be wrong. So um, I hope no one here speaks Spanish. So then correct me. It was? Two years Spanish. Okay, so you could correct me then. Um, they're not going to know what you're talking about, then it's very likely that they'll tell somebody else what they thought you said, but really you didn't say it. 
Um, and it doesn't work, by the way. It doesn't work. And I, this is really for the men. Like, just to repeat the last sentence that somebody said. Well, of course I'm listening. Yeah, yeah, you said that uh, Trump would make a great again in America. Right? I heard that. Everything. Uh, you know, you can't just repeat the last sentence and think that that's the whole, the whole idea of it. If you understand something, then you understand it. But if you don't understand it in the beginning, then it's very likely that you will misrepresent it later on when you're telling it to other people. That is one possibility of, of taking a report and... Spreading it out falsely. Another, another idea, and this is only, there's only two options, is where you will hear the report, but you will willfully, knowingly change it and tell it to other people. So those are two things. Either mistakenly do it, or willfully doing it. The problem is, is that when you're doing this to a large group of people, it's impossible to do it. If you're doing it to a large group of people, you can't tell, you can't tell them, you can't, first of all, you can't assume that they all mistakenly understood it. You can't assume that nobody knows what they're talking about. Everybody was on PCP, LCD, I don't know, whatever other, you know, ABC, uh, that they were on any, any drugs they want, and they all misrepresented it. Because it doesn't happen in large numbers of quantity of people. Only in small numbers. You could say a small group of people be like, yeah, you know, we saw a cactus talk to us, and then we drink some sand, and now we're here. You know, you, that, you could say it if there's one or two people, you know, you could sort of keep alive. But a, a big a group of people, you can't keep alive. The other idea of mistakenly understanding something, if you're telling something to a thousand people, it's very unlikely that all 1,000 of them is going to get completely the wrong idea, the same idea. It's unlikely. It's so unlikely that it never happened before. So these two ideas, if you're able to, to and of course, this is what, how Rabbi Sadia Gaon goes and explains it, if you're able to go and remove these two doubts from a report, then you know that report was, was true. This is how we look at, at Har Sinai. Har Sinai, not only did we have a large group of people, but the fact is that this large group of people, it's impossible to go and to fabricate a lie or to mistakenly understand when you're talking about three million people. So that is the idea we spoke about before, um, and that is just the recap. Okay, so it took us a little bit longer than the two minutes that I was anticipating. Yeah. What about when people say, like, um, there's no, you can't you can really prove for 100% fact that it happened, because you can't actually find anybody that's, you know... So you could ask the same question about history in general. Can you prove 100% fact that Alexander the Great existed? I mean, it's written in history. Can you prove it? Well, the question is that if you're able to go and remove the reasons of doubt, which means that you'll remove the ideas of why people would want to lie about it, and if they can lie about it, then you're left with the, with the idea, then yeah, it's most likely true. But, but what you say is very important. Uh, the word proof is a very, or prove, is a very, very strong word. You can't really technically prove anything to anybody ever. Even if you go scientifically and you prove with 100% accuracy, there's always remains some sort of doubt. No matter... You know, I, I've spoken to people who are, let's say, um, this is a question that I ask often, I might have said this story before, that um, when they're about to get engaged, or they're engaged, they're about to get married, one of the questions that I ask them, and I probably shouldn't, but I do, and I probably will still continue doing it, is how sure you are about it, right? Not the best thing to do to somebody, especially if they're, yeah. So I say how sure you are about it. Usually I get not so sure. The reason why I ask them is then I go and I'm able to go and, and guide them to, to, you know, like, in a logical perspective, re- reasoning, is this a right decision, which most likely, you know, 99% of the time it is, especially if you're engaged already. Or, you know, the, on the flip side, where I get 100% sure, I'm sure that she's the one. I'm sure that he's the one. So very rarely I got it. In fact, I got it only once. Um, and they're in the process of divorce now. So, um, again, I don't know how accurate that, that would be. But I remember I asked, I said, I'm like, how sure are you about this marriage? About this thing? And 
And the guy told me, he's like, 100%, no doubt. I'm like, high five, man. I'm like, you know, that's unbelievable. I've never heard that before. I was like, that's crazy. And um, now it's kind of, you know, dirty. So you never actually really know. Even when you think you know, you really don't know. So, But the idea is, is that when you're doing any decision in life, you do it to the best possibility. Think about any decision that you have ever made, ever. Like you want to, um, I'm crossing a line now, but I'm going to go for it. You want to buy a $2,000 dress, right? And, um, yeah, I went there, all right? <laughs> okay, so uh, you go and, listen, if I was speaking to guys, it would be a car. Um, it wouldn't be $2,000 because, yeah, uh, yeah. So let's say you're going and you're putting a lot of money towards, and I, I might be way off, $2,000 be like, well, yeah, you know, that's, you know, my, you know, whatever, Sunday, I don't know. Um, so... Uh, I obviously can't read the room. So in any case, um, the, but the idea is, if, let's say you spend a lot of money on a dress. Do you know for certain that you'll love it forever? No. You might love it for a year, and then you might it might go out of style, and you know the color of the spring is orangutan. I don't know. I know that's not a color. Um, I'm learning my colors. My daughter knows more colors than me. I, I'm not going to lie. My daughter knows more. She told me about the color teal. And I'm like... What's, yeah, I found out that, yeah, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. I'm like, I, I don't, I never knew that's teal, I, that's blue to me, right? And I think to 99% of men, that's going to be blue. Um, but there is like peach, red, tangerine, I don't know if there's tangerine, but there's, uh, there's like all these different colors of the spectrum. We're, we're basic. We know the, you know, we know the rainbow colors and, you know, anything in between them, we just round it off to the nearest color that it is, you know, inside of it. But, you, when you're when you're getting something, it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll love it forever. You don't know. You have no idea. You have, and in fact, every and I don't want to scare you, and and especially for the anxious people in the room, any decision that you're going to make ever, you're never going to know 100. percent The way that you're going to know is based on the proofs and everything that you'll weigh yourself and say, okay, I am more likely going to be happy with this man. I'm going to be more likely happy with this woman than anybody else. And you say, Mazel Tov, you know, let's break the glass, uh, give me a nice engagement ring, and buy me stuff, right? So well, I don't know, depending on your your mindset. It is. Anything is a leap of faith. But there's always logic placed into it. So, the okay, let's move on. Good? Okay, good. Okay, we are cutting on such off tangents. Okay, I'm going to be here till midnight. I'm just kidding. Um, I have to be out early. Anyways, so, um, okay, so let's, let, let's speak about the first, the first idea on this. The first idea is, is something very fantastical, which is a word that I just made up, if it is not true, is the seven-day week. It's something very interesting. We know why there is, a, well... Most people, everybody knows why there's a, why in a solar calendar year there is 365 days, right? I gave the answer in the first part, the solar calendar, right? So the solar calendar, the reason why is it makes sense because the world, you know, the, the 365 days is around the sun. It's around the way the time to time is to make the sun to do a, let's call it a lap, right? So why is there 12 months? Why is there 24 hours a day? If you look at all aspects of everything that we're dealing with in the, in the calendar section, there is a astrological reason behind it. 24 hours a day, a month, a lunar month, a, a you know, solar year. We have reasons behind it. Now let me ask you a question like this. Why do we have a seven-day week? Does anybody know why we have a seven-day week? Besides that reason, which is very obvious and true and correct. The Russians tried eight and it didn't work. The Russians. It's always about the Russians. <laughs> Did you guys hear this? Okay. <laughs> it's a KGB, you know, because they, you know, after they messed up with Trump, they were like, you know, you know, okay. So, um. I heard a really cute idea. Yeah. That Monday's paired with Tuesday. No, wait. 
Sundays with Monday, and Tuesdays with Wednesday, and Thursday with Fr- is with Friday, and Saturdays with June. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's actually, that's true. That's not the, yeah. That's yeah. more than cute. That's <laughs> legit, right? Cute. Yeah, yeah. So, but if you think about it, what's the reason? Why does every single person that lives in society, again, I can't account for like the African tribes that they may have, you know, some sort of, you know, I don't know, a 10-day week or a 5-day week or you know, whatever it is. Why is it that everyone has a 7-day week? You ever think about that? Like, it makes absolutely no sense. If you don't believe in the Torah, you don't believe that God created the world in seven, in 6 days and rested on the 7th day, which is 1 week, why do we have a week? Why? You ever think about it? So, nothing to do with the solar system. There's nothing that there is a week. What's in a week? There's nothing. And it's very, you know, and I, and I searched this for, you know, amongst atheists. And um, they, you know, they start claiming about the Babylonians that they started off, and there were other date variations, but it didn't work out. Uh, and the Babylonians, you know, something very interesting about the Babylonians that they say that they are the ones who started the seven day week. They claimed that the seventh day was also holy, but the atheists very bold, you know, made sure in caps and bold to say, but like this is nothing to do with Judaism and nothing to do with Genesis and nothing to do with creation. They just happened to have a very holy seventh day also. They did, of course they did. Yeah, so I, whatever, they don't know history. I'm saying, but whatever, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt and, uh, you know, let their, let their voice be heard. There's but the no idea. Scientific reason for seven weeks. There's no scientific reason for seven weeks. No scientific reason behind seven weeks. Yeah, this is what this is somebody say, like, I don't believe in the Torah, I don't believe in why do you have a seven day week? That's right, the Kuzari brings us down. So it's something very interesting to think about. Why do we have a seven day week? We know we have a seven day week because God created the earth in six days, and rested on the seventh day, that's Shabbat, that's a seven-day week. And then we have, everybody else has a seven-day week. There's no other logical explanation other than that. The, you know, and, and the idea is... If you think about it, why seven? I don't know, maybe they broke it up into 12 months, and then they're like, all right, well, it makes sense within... Each. So let's say it's 30 days, 29 to 39 days, wouldn't it make sense to make it 10 days a week, and, you know, with three weeks? You think about it, you put more of a whole number... Um, it might make easier sense for the calculations, especially that you now that you have seven, and now they have you know every month is a different a different variation of how many days that they are. So it would make sense to 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 do something that you would be able to, you know, consistently follow the same order, and you don't have that. You really don't have it. It's a very interesting concept, and there's no real good answer for it. Every atheist is going to give you eh, whatever. Okay, let's wait for the atheist. We're gonna we're gonna speak about them soon. Um, the the Torah says. Not, and this is very, what people very, very mis- very much misunderstand. You think that you have to believe in God. Yeah, do you believe in God? Yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure he's gonna give me everything I want. You know, he's gonna send me my man, and he's gonna give me my dress, and he's gonna send me the beautiful dress, and he's gonna do that. And, and I believe, and I believe, and I believe, and I believe. Which is great, and you should, and you're required, it's a munah, and you're required to do that. However, the Torah says numerous times that you have to know that there is a God. Knowledge is very different than belief. Knowledge means that you know for certain. And again, for certain, as we spoke before, to the most ability that you're able to be certain about anything. But the, the idea is that you have to know for a fact that there is a God. And look, you look at, for example, in Exodus chapter 16, verse 12, the adatim ki'ani Hashem elokechem. You will know, the adatim is knowledge, you will know that I am, that I am your God. In Joshua, in Yoshua chapter 4, verse 24, leman dat esyad Hashem. That everybody will know the power of God. And we have this numerous places. You look in Isaiah, Yeshayahu, chapter 43, verse 10. That you know and believe in me. This is very interesting. That you know me and you have to believe in me. This is knowledge that we're speaking about here. Knowing means that you know that this is black and this is white. Right? That you know something. That's how you're supposed to know it. Now, if you're supposed to know God, 
then we can extend that idea, and this is my own, my own two cents, you can extend the idea that if, there, if you have to know about God, then you have to know about religion. You have to be able to know which religion is right and which religion is false. I consistently get to this day tremendous amount of heat um, and, and, uh, and pushback on why I'm messing with other religions. Like, why you got to mess with it? Let everybody do, do their own thing, and it, you know, it's fine. And granted, if they want to do their own thing, by all means, let them do their own thing. Uh, and people take it very personally. I, I, you know, and, I, and, I, and I tell them again and again, I don't mean to offend you. I don't mean to hurt you. I don't mean to uh, do that. I'm just simply telling you the truth. You don't like it. Don't listen to me. I, I, don't, I, I really don't. I know, and in fact, I, had, um, I was speaking once at a place, and I was speaking very strong, and one of the guys whispered to me, and he was like, he's like, yo, dude, you got to uh, you know, lighten up a little bit. You know, this is a you know, crowd. And I'm like... I, I really don't care. You know, I really, I'm like, don't invite me. I told, I said that on camera. I said, don't invite me again. I'm not going to change what I'm saying. I'm like, I, I really don't care if you don't invite me again to speak by your, by your place. I'm going to say what it's going to say. And guess what? They invited me again numerous, numerous times, you know, again and again. But you know, to be, to, to be honest, I really don't care. If you're not, if you're going to be, um, and I'll explain something that happened um, quite some time ago. I had a, a very, a very strong argument, a very heated argument with a person about uh, Mishkav Zahar, which is same gender relations. Let's keep it clean, right? Uh, okay. So, and they were very, so much, so much so that they obviously had a very, very personal. I don't know if they were or they knew somebody very close to them, but they were very, very closely related into the, into the subject. And it was going back and forth. It was like, it's, it's, what's the problem with it? Let everybody love whoever they want. I'm like, they could love whatever they want, but I, I'm telling you the Torah's opinion. And we're going back and forth, back and forth to the point where where it goes, and and uh, they, you know, they stand up. And they say, you know what? And he says, this is what Rabbi Zetron says. So I'm like, uh, uh no, uh, this is what the Torah says. And they were like, no! You know, like, so, like, they knew the whole time. They were like, no! This is, it was, it was like, it was, you know how it's heated when someone gets, like, really angry and they stand up? Then, you know, it's like, you know, so, like, they were standing, they were like, no, this is what Rabbi Zetron says. I'm like, no, it's what Leviticus chapter 18 verse 22 says, that, a person is not allowed to lie. A man is not allowed to lie with, with another man like he would lie with a woman. It's pretty straight out forward there. You're not allowed to do that. And then they were like pushed into the corner. So they were like, well, how many people even believe that the Torah is divine? So I said, a little over four billion. And then they were like, you know, they thought they didn't, I didn't understand them. So they repeated the question. I said, how many people believe that the Torah is divine? And I was like, I said, four billion. You know, I'm like, if you didn't hear me the first time, the second time is still the same number. It hasn't changed since last we spoke, um, which was six seconds ago. So, uh, rack it back to the, the video thing, fine, whatever, yeah. So, so we connect things. And then, yeah. Okay, so in any case, um, you know, and, and they were like, what are you talking about, four billion people? I'm like... The Christians and the Muslims both both believe that the Torah was divine. The, the Christians believe it as is. The Muslims think that we made some changes. But they both believe the Torah was divine. The Muslims and the Christians, so you're adding it, you know, roughly you're speaking, let's say, I don't know, 2.1, 2.2 billion uh, Christians. You're talking about 1.8 to 2.2 billion Muslims. You're going between 4 to 4.5 billion people in the world believe that the Torah is divine. And they all believe, by the way, the ones that believe that, that you know, same gender relations is a big no-no. And furthermore, as I said, which is an interesting fact, there's roughly about 7.6 billion people in the world. You know what's something very, very, very scary and, and very fascinating at the same point in time? When I was, um, you know, after I said that number, I was like, what, is it really 7.6? So I went to, to do some research. There is a world 
human calculator. I don't know what the, what it's called actually. It's it, it gives you live count on how many people die and how many people are born at that point in time. This is one of the most scariest things that you'll see. It's literally you see the people that are dead. It's like you know, like the national debt they have. Like for you know, they have. The, have you ever seen that? There's like a billboard. Uh, is it still out? There? It's still up there. There's a there's a billboard out there that's like all the debt that U.S. owes for. Um, whatever, like to, to like everybody else, mostly China, but whatever, uh, to everybody else, right, the debt that we owe, and you look at it, it's like the numbers are like fan. It's like you don't even see the numbers. It's like they're like growing, 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 growing. That's how it looks. So you see like 7.6, you know, whatever, you know, like, I don't know, 9876543321, whatever it is, and you see like the one like going down, going down, and then going up, and you see the number of deaths, the number of born. We don't appreciate life. You see like in a minute, you're able to see like, you know, Hundreds, if not thousands, of people die, and then hundreds, if not thousands, of people that are born. How do they do the numbers? I have no idea. You know, it might be some guy, that guy with the Cheetos, just like pressing buttons. Like I, you know, I'm pretty sure now someone died. It could be that. I don't know the authenticity of it, but the idea—it's—it's it's very logical. That the numbers are roughly, you know, they are roughly, and it's interesting. It does it by by uh, country. It does it by country. So you see how many people are in America, how many people are in Israel, how many people are in Afghanistan, how many people are in Syria. That number is really fluctuating. Um, the, you, know, the, the, you know, you see all these different, different ideas on it. It's something very, we don't appreciate life. Can you appreciate, you know how instantly like that, a hundred people just died. A thousand people were just born. You know, and it's not because I snapped my finger. You know, it's just in a second. I'm just saying that, you know, it's not. It's crazy. Do we appreciate it? Do we appreciate being here where so many people are not here anymore and they were here one second ago? And, you know, so many people are now here before and then they weren't here a second ago. We don't really appreciate what we're dealing with. But when you think about it, 7.6 billion people, right? That's the number that we're dealing with. More than half the population of the world believes in the Torah is divine. Isn't that, isn't that fantastical? I'm going to stick with that word. Right? Maybe we could put it in like, like chutzpah into the, you know, into the dictionary. So it, it's something really you know, unbelievable. You know what's even more hilarious, and I call this hilarious, is 23 times in the Torah it says that it was never going to be changed. Yet, half the world believes that the Torah is divine, believes that the Torah came from God, but yet they change it. I'm like, 23, it wasn't like, it's not like one time accidentally it was like slipped in there like the Torah's never going to be changed, you know, before. 23 times, right, and I have all the sources of all 23 different uh, verses in the five books of Moses where it says the Torah's never going to be changed. How do you explain that? How do you deal with that and claim like, yeah, yeah, well, Jesus came afterwards and everything has changed. Where do you get that from? Where? It's, it's, it's nowhere to be found. So... I don't know how they call me every time I'm in class. Every time I'm in class, I get a certain phone call from a certain person. And I'll tell you, you know, being that I get it now, um, it's off topic again. We're, not, we're nowhere close to, I'm sorry, you know, like, whatever, you know. Okay, whatever, it's fine. Um, the, oh, which, I don't know how this rhymes me. We're learning tonight with Wash the Matu Abraham Ben Bracha. Okay, um, so, anyways, the, my brain works in weird ways. Um, let's call it fantastical ways, right? Um, so, it, I get a phone call every, every so often from a certain person who is not uh, 100%, can we say that? Is that politically correct? Um, is, is that, no, there, there happens to be that these type of people, you, you don't realize that, but these type of people are very, very holy. The souls are holier than you. So you laugh at that, whatever it is, they are very, very holy. They don't have, the, for a certain aspect, they don't have free will. Not only do they don't have free will, they don't get punished for the things that they do. They're here for a certain period of time and they're going straight to Ghana They have a very, very high level of, of, you know, of a soul. And there was one big rabbi, whenever he saw somebody, thank you, who wasn't 100%, he would stand up for them. And really, you should do that. You really should do that because these people are very, 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 very holy. These people are very, very holy and it's not a uh, that anybody should ever make fun of them or look down at them on them. But, 
I get a phone call from every so often from from uh, this um, you know uh, you know the, the type of congregation, and um, they call me, and I try to answer as much as I can because it's very very important that you have to give them the time. You don't know you know in the next world who they are and who you are. They're like up there, and you're like the dust of their feet. So if they call and they speak, I give them as much time as I can, except for during class. And I call they, very often. And what do they usually do? Um, they, they give me musal. They give me a rebuke. And I get, I get the most hilarious different types of rebukes. Right? What type of undergarments do you wear? Make sure you wear only this type and not this type. And they follow up with this. Did you listen to what I said before? Did you not listen to what I said before? They went through this at, at all point in time. But, um, but, but, it, but the point that I'm saying in the story is that it's very, very important to teach these people with, with, to... to Treat these people with utmost respect and to give them the time of day. People say like, okay, this person is you know crazy, and why do I have to speak to them? No, you should speak to them and give them the time of the day. You should say they could tell you about the UFO that they just met, and you'll be like, yes, I understand, that's unbelievable. Don't you know? It's 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 very well. No, don't don't buy a smile. They they really some of these people need attention. Whatever it is, they're very holy people, and they re- you really have to treat them uh, you know accordingly. So uh, that was part of my muster uh, session that I unfortunately missed by by that person. Anyways, uh, moving back to the topic at hand. Um, I'm just gonna let you know right now, like I'm not editing anything that's coming out over here. This is whatever is coming out of my mouth is going up online. Usually I edit it, but today, so um, I guess we're on a tightrope at this point. Okay, so um, okay, the the idea behind it is is that uh, when you look at when you look at Judaism, when you look at everything else, there. There's nothing to compare. There really is nothing to compare. And that's why I bring all the other ideas inside of it, because it really shows you the difference between Judaism and any other religion, cult or gathering or whatever it is, you know, spiritual awakening that people have. Then the question is asked, but I don't understand. The idea in Judaism is that you have to go according to the numbers, right? You have to go according to the majority. So this, is, this uh, was a Christian, you know, somebody, who went and once went to a rabbi and says, you have to follow the majority. Are majority Christians or are majority Jews? Yeah, majority are Christians. You must follow the majority. So the rabbi responded, and I'll tell you what the rabbi responded, and I'll tell you a little bit of a different answer for that also. Rabbi responded, says, imagine two people, uh, imagine you're walking into it and there's a disaster. I don't know. Um, King Kong is loose, um, and, right, and, and all the Asians are running, right, and the cameras, and they're running away, and some of you get that reference, some of you don't. Um, well, they will go, and, and yeah, I told you, I'm not adding anything. We're, we're going in a hole here that we cannot get out of. So... They're running after, they're running away from it, and you see there's two groups of people that are running in separate directions. Now you have a choice. You're gonna follow one of them or one of them. You have to go in either one of the two directions. You see one group, very, very large group. You see another group, a very, very small group. You would think initially, I'll chase after, I'll run after, I'll run with, better yet, the, the larger group, because they must, but let's say, you look at who's leading the larger group. You see a blind guy, right, with those glasses and the stick, and he's the one who's leading everybody. Are you now going, and then you see somebody else who looks like he knows exactly where he's going, but he has a small following. Who are you going to follow? The large group or the small group? The small group. So he says, when you, when you look at, at Judaism, you look at who's the specialist? Who's the specialist over here? Who knows where he's going? The Christians and the Muslims, which claim 99% of them don't even know how to read Hebrew, and they know what the Torah says, they tell you what the Torah says, or the people that actually know what they're talking about. Who are you going to follow? And I'll tell you a different, a different example as well. There was um, a person that was diagnosed with a very, very rare disease. And the doctor came in, the specialist came in and said, listen, you have to take this medication. If you don't take this medication, you're going to die. And you have about a week left, so you better decide very quickly. And he's about to take the medication, like, What's the, you know, of course I'll take the medication. And another doctor runs in and says, whoa, don't, don't, don't do it. If you take that medication, you're going to die. So now this, per- this, place is, is, this, person, this person in a place is stuck between a hard place and a rock, a hard place and a rock. I, never, I don't know why I can't get that saying right. right? He's he stuck between a hard place and a rock, a rock and a hard place, whatever. 
He's stuck in a situation where he has no no obvious solution. So what would be the what what would you think would be the the solution to do? Oh, very good. Okay, excellent. I asked this to the men class, and we're like, they would like take the medication. I'm like, whoa, dude. I'm like, relax. Why are you taking the medication? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, you should ask more people. Yeah, yeah that's a good idea. <laughs> I'm like, do me a favor before you make any larger decisions. Come to me. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, you ask more opinions. Imagine they come back with 21 opinions. 21 opinions. One person says take the medication. 20 people says don't take the medication. Who do you listen to? 20. Okay, research, you're close. What about if I tell you that out of the 20 people, all doctors, all doctors, five of them are veterinary physicians, specialists in dogs. Um, uh, another five of them are, they have a PhD, they have a doctorate in math. Um, another five of them are, I don't know, ophthalmologists, and another five of them are podiatrists, eye doctors and foot doctors. This one has a very rare, I don't know, stomach disease. And the one person that says do it is the greatest specialist in the field, in the world. He's telling you to do it. And the other 20 people don't really know what they're talking about. Now I'm going to ask you the question. Who are you going to listen to? 21. Ah, so very good. Okay, so now it doesn't only depend on majority. It depends on who's leading the majority. Do they know what they're talking about? Or do they not know what they're talking about? When you look at all the other religions, yeah, you know, um, Hinduism has almost a billion people. I have a guy that, that uh, was, was uh, you know, practicing Hinduism at one point in time. He just sent me emails, uh, you know, about... You have no idea what these people worship. And I, you think that uh, what I said, this is ridiculous. What they, some of them cut them. Like, they're literally like blood flowing down their stuff, their face. They're like, they're going, and this is what they're worshiping. And you're like, okay, should I follow the people that, you know, cut themselves? Or should I follow somebody? You know, like, you're looking at it. Just because there's a large number doesn't mean that they are correct. It doesn't mean that they're following somebody who's, who knows what they're talking about. When you look at all the religions, especially the ones that came after Judaism, when you think about it, what is most likely the person that has more information about this? It's going to be the Jews. Because A, they know what they're talking about because they actually read and speak the language and write the language. And B, they have a direct connection, a direct tradition from rabbi to student from the beginning of the you know, Torah until now. So... The um, the idea is is that is that to say that it was fake to say that anything is very very unlikely. Furthermore, there is a special quality in in Jews, and um, special you can call them in, in many different ways. One thing Jews are not are they're not gullible, right? We're not gullible people uh, for the majority of us. I've met a few Jews that are very gullible, but for the majority of us, they're not uh, gullible people. The and not only that, when you think about it, like maybe, maybe, Moses was such a charismatic speaker that he was able to go and convince everybody, like, complete falsehood, whatever it is, make up the whole idea. The problem with that is, is that in numerous places in the Torah, it says that Moses was not only not a good speaker, he had a, he had a speech impediment. It says in Exodus chapter 4, verse 10, Moshe is speaking to God, Lo anochi. I'm not a man of words. Moses literally saying, like, I'm not a, the speaker type. Like, maybe get, I don't know, maybe get somebody else who's a speaker type. Furthermore, Moses tells God in Exodus chapter 6 verse 12 The Jewish people didn't listen to me How is God, how is Paro going to go listen to me If my own Jewish brothers didn't listen to me I am of closed lips Right, and numerous times, again and again, it says about you know the, the you know Moshe that he was not a good orator. He was he had a speech impediment. People were not listening to him. And in fact, you open a gemara. What is the gemara filled with? Arguments. 
The Jews don't accept things easily. We just don't. We don't. You sell something to us, we're going to ask a thousand questions. Even if you're giving us a winning lottery ticket, we're going to ask a thousand questions, right? We might take it first, put it in our pocket, and then ask the questions. But we're going to be asking questions. Why are you doing this? You know, who are you? Like, why, you know, what's going on? We're, we're just people that ask questions. We're known uh, throughout history... And throughout the Tanakh also, we're known as Am HaMinifchav, the chosen people, Am HaSethel, the people of the book, Am HaNetzach, the, chosen, the, the eternal people, and Ol Agoim, a light unto the nations. But we're also known as something else. In Exodus chapter 32, verse 9, we're known as Am Kshe'orif. Anybody know what Am Kshe'orif means? Stubborn. stubborn people. We're known as stubborn people. Um, and you could really know about this. Like, you know, I, you know, I used to fly more recently than, more, more frequently, uh, recently, I don't know where that came from, more frequently uh, than now. And if you fly with El Al, you know, I really give credit to the people that work in El Al. Like, it really hurt, breaks my heart sometimes. I've seen people that just walk up to the counter, let me speak to your man, El Jail, please. And be like, what's the problem? Man, El Jail, but, you know, they don't even bother with anything else. Like, manager, manager. You know, you know, like, imagine you're going on there and you, you know the people like, let me speak to an agent, please. You know, Jews don't wait. You know, like, if you know your problem, is this your problem? Please say yes. Agent, supervisor, let me speak to the owner of the company. You know, like, we're only, in, we're not interested in anything else. We want to go to the top. We're not, you know, these people, they go in there, the airline, you know, the airline, whatever, they're about to fly out. They're not even, like, can you tell me the problem? You cannot help me, only the manager can help me. Right, you're like, they're not even interested in dealing with that. We're stubborn people, and we don't rest until we speak to the top. We don't. And have you ever seen somebody go and tell, you know, you go to, to the, um, you know, to the LL desk and the overweight, right? So I don't know what, it's the number now, right? I don't know, whatever it is, let's say 50 pounds, right? And it's 52 pounds, right? What if this, you know, what do people say? Check again. I mean, like, it's still on the counter. We still see the weight. We still see that it's not bad. Check it, reset it. Something wrong with this. I checked it at home, 50 pounds exactly. Something over here, right? And they might try to lift it with their foot. See, look, all of a sudden, eh, 50, 50 pounds. You know, it's all of a sudden really good. You know, like, we don't, we don't accept things easily. Even when we're in trouble, we don't accept things easily, right? I don't want to speak about what happens when the cop pulls Jew over, right? Um, you know, because first of all, they have 50 BPA, uh, what is it called, BPA cards, right, uh, what we're dealing with. I know the councilman, I know this, I know the judge, I know this, I know the Supreme Court. You want your person, you want, you want to save your job? You better make sure, you know, a warning will be okay, you know? I'm like, you know, like, you know, sir, you were driving without headlights and, you know, taillights and you were driving 50 miles above the speed limit. Don't tell me, you know, exactly, what, especially if it was an old bubby, right? Uh, um... So I'll tell you exactly how fast I was going. We don't, we're stubborn people. We're stubborn people. We don't take things lightly. We don't, we're not an easy sell. The fact that we accepted the Torah and the fact that we're so stubborn shows also its validity to something. We can't, you can't sell something to somebody. If the more stubborn that they are and they accept it, there must be that there's either you're a great salesman or there's something really true about this. Harry Truman, the 33rd president of the United States of America. You guys know that? Dun, 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 dun. Okay, that, uh, you know, this country, right? So um, he goes over to Golda Meir. Golda Meir was the prime minister at the time. At that time, there was roughly 180 million Americans living in America, 1.8 million Israelis living in Israel. And Harry Truman goes over to Golda Meir, the prime minister, and, she, and he goes to her and he says, you don't know how tough it is to run a country with 180 million people. And Golda Meir says, you don't know how hard it is to run a country with 1.8 million prime ministers. Because everybody in Israel is a prime minister. Have you ever seen a Jew talk politics? They know better than everybody else. They know, that, you know, Obama, Trump, they don't know what they're talking about. BB, forget about it. This is what I would do had I been a prime minister, and this is the correct thing to do. Right? We, we're, not, we're not easy people to deal with, right? And in fact, there's numerous times where we're arguing with Moses. Like, you know, Moses just like did all these crazy miracles, and we argue with him. You know, like, there's a certain point in time, you know, like, 
if a person punches you and you fall down enough times, stop asking for more. Like, and again, this is not related. Moses didn't punch us. Relax. Um, but the idea is, is that is that they saw so much stuff, they still had questions. They still had doubts on, you know, on it. But the truth is that this stubbornness really helped us. Because this, is, this stubbornness helped us you know, go through you know, the communist Russia, where you still had people that were still religious after, after communists. You still had people that were keeping Shabbat in America in the early 1900s. Which means that every single week, if you, kept Amer- if you kept America, if you kept Shabbos, you were fired the next day. And yet you still had people that kept Shabbos. You know why? Because I'm Sheoff. We're a stubborn people. And you look at Rashi, what it says over there, it says we don't accept criticism lightly. And trust me, I know that firsthand. Because I give criticism. Right? Um, and, and, you know, we don't, we, don't accept, we don't accept it. The fact that we do accept it, and we do have it, that shows something, uh, you know, that shows something on it. To say it right now, we're not going to finish in the next five minutes. So if anybody needs to leave, by all means, you know, Chazak Wolf, do, do what you got to do. Um, we got a little sidetracked today. So... Um, we're just a little bit, right? Um, so we're almost finished our introduction. So uh, the <laughs> the idea is is that not only are Jews stubborn, but Jews are also very studious. Jews are very very studious. Just go to any college, right? The people right away drift to the people with the yarmulkes to copy off them. They're not they're not looking at you know they're right away going uh, you know you know off uh, you know off off that. The the idea is is that also there, there was a twelfth century Catholic monk that observed and it says and I'm going to quote a Jew, however poor. If he has ten sons, he will put them all to letters and not for gain as the Christians do. This is a Christian scholar saying that if the Jewish people have children, they're going to put them to study, not to, not to go work and make, and make money. There was, um, there was a certain Christian scholar that visited Warsaw in, um, during the First World, uh, right before the First World War, and he saw a bunch of cabs, which back then were horse and buggies, but cabs, um, that were empty. There was no, 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 one, no one inside them. So he asked, there was a young Jewish boy nearby, he says, where is everybody? So the Jewish boy showed them they were going in there studying. They were studying Torah. But in the middle of the day, in the middle of the day, they all just stop what they're doing, they go learn for like, and they weren't going to learn like sitting in a class lecture and the, guy, you know, the rabbi was saying funny stories. They were learning, they were sweating, they were screaming at each other, they were going and they were trying to figure out the Gemara, the Halakha, all these different things. They were working on, they were working on this because that's what Jews do. Jews are studying people. We constantly in their book, we're constantly studying. The problem is, is now we're more secular. We're still studying, we're just studying different things, right? We're still studying. And that's why you look at it. You look at there was a study done in 1971 that 89% of native-born U.S. Jews significantly exceeded their father's level of education. And they compared it to seven, seven different ethnic and religious groups. We exceeded by far, you know, beat everybody else. We're people that just goes and study. We're there, we're, we're in for the, for the knowledge. In fact, in 1981, another study was done that at that point in time, there was between 2.2 to 2.6% of the American population were Jews, including Reform, Conservative, everybody, you know, Orthodox, everybody else. Harvard University had between 28 to 40% of Jewish population inside of there. The top university in America, I think, right? It still is, I think. Um, is, you know, I don't think it's Brooklyn College. Um, is, is, as some people would like to uh, say, 28 to 40% of Jewish people were in Harvard University while we don't even make 3% of the population. How do you explain that? How do you, because we are people that are studious. We are people that are, that are, that are studying. Now, if, now this also, this answers, a, this answers a question that maybe God really gave the Torah. God, that whole thing happened, but we lost it over the time. We're studious people. That's what we do. That's why, you know, being an opt- you know, you know, optician, you know, is a great business in the Jewish because everyone has glasses. You know, like we're always studying, we're always reading, we're always doing things. We're always, we're always, we're always, always reading. We're always studying. Now, granted, it's not everybody. 
but a very large majority of the Jewish population, even secular, it doesn't matter, we're into education. When we're doing all this stuff, it's very unlikely that we forgot everything all of a sudden. Like, how we're, our laps, all of a sudden, what happened? We had like a few years where we were addicted to marijuana, right? And then the brain, you know, sort of like, we're going to about to go on a very long tangent right now. No, okay, fine, okay. Um, a very short tangent. Marijuana does fry your brain. I've spoken to people. I have one class that I give very frequently, all potheads. Um, I see their eyes. It's like glazed over. It's like, I, I'm, I feel like I'm speaking to like, you know, eighth, eighth graders or things like that. It's really like, you cannot tell me. And they tell me like, no, what are you talking about? It helps me concentrate. When was the last time you concentrated, dude? Like, when was it like, like, you know, like, you could see their eyes are like glazed over. They're like, you know, like this. And they're like, I could say the same thing like ten times over. and be like, wow, that was really, that was good, dude. Why do they come to the class? That was free food. I don't know why. <laughs> Got the munchies. I don't know. Um, so... They're hungry in between also. They eat a lot. Okay, so anyways, um, but they're still skinny. So uh, go figure. Um, different class for a different time. The, l- let's speak a little bit about miracles. When you, when you look, let's say, for example, the, the Exodus. You look at the, um, the Exodus. You have many miracles that happened during the Exodus. What? The answer is the Torah. The only, the only logical ex- explanation for it is that there's seven days a week because that's what the Torah says. There's no other logical explanation for it. Ask atheists and they'll probably say something that's nonsensical, which is another word that I made up. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, we're on a roll today. Fantastical and nonsensical. Okay. Um, write that down. So someone submit it to Webster Dictionary, please. Okay. So, is they still even around anymore? It's probably Google Dictionary, right? I know he's not around. Or she, isn't it? She, isn't it Miriam? Yeah. And so, maybe it's a guy. You never know nowadays. Okay, so, um, the, let's say the ten plagues. Let's say you say that the... The blood was some sort of infestation of microorganism of the marine, you know, family that turned everything red. I'll give it to you. The frogs, the lice, the pestilence, all that stuff, the darkness, all some had a sort of ecological fluke that just so happened to start and stop when Moses said, I'll give it to you. How do you explain the, ten, the, the death of the, of the firstborn? How do you explain that? Did they have like a, you know, community meeting only the firstborns and they all ate something and they all died? We would have seen some sort of documentation for that. How do you explain the death of the firstborn if you want to say everything was, everything else was, was some sort of just by happenstance? There's, there's certain things that you don't have answers to. Let's look at the man. The man is something so unbelievable, so significant. And this is how Rabbi, Deni, Rabbi David, I'm sorry, uh, Godly, thank you, um, explains, uh, this. Thank you for coming today. Okay, so, um, this is how Rabbi Gottlieb explains this. He says that when you're witnessing a report, there are certain criteria that's very likely that you misrepresented the report. An example, let's say you're not emotionally stable. And I'm not talking about in general. I'm talking about just in that period of point in time. Let's say you're very anxious. You're very depressed. You're very that. So when you see something, you might say, well, I just saw God speak to this taxi cab driver, Ahmed, Ahmed Jinnajad, right? And he's, I was there. I was there in the back seat and I saw everything. Now, if you're very anxious and having a panic attack, or on other sort of emotional distress, it's very, very possible what you say you saw and what you really saw is not really the same idea. But if you see something and you're in a calm state of mind, that's more likely that it's going to be true. That's step number one. Step number two is if a miracle happened, if it's, if it's repeated again and again, then you could say, okay, then there's something going on over here. It wasn't just one time that I just sort of like, you know, woke up on the wrong side of the bed and I saw something crazy. If it happens again and again, that's something that, that shows you. Number three... If you have more than one or two people witness an event, that also shows the validity of something. Which means is if you saw somebody fly, 
if you just saw somebody fly and your best friend, who's a teddy bear and doesn't talk, saw somebody fly, um, then it's very unlikely that anybody's going to believe you that somebody flew. But let's say you and 6,000 of your friends that are all alive, well, and have a heart um, are going and they say that they saw you, then it's very, very possible and likely that what you saw is true, especially if everybody else also claims the same thing. Number four, did you directly experience this like crazy miracle or did somebody tell you what you experienced? You know how you have it like, okay, what you saw is like this. All right, let me tell you, explain to you what you saw. God, and and so on and so forth. And number five, do you have any self-interest in saying the story? Like, do you have any self-interest in saying, yeah, you know what, this is what happened, and this is the reason that it happened. So... The, you know, the idea behind this is that you look at the mun. The mun is something that answers all these criteria. Number one, it fell thousands of times. It fell daily for 40 years. So it fell thousands of times. You could say that people were nervous, anxious, not emotionally stable for the first, I'll give you a thousand times, right? For the first few years, they weren't sure what they're talking about. After a certain point in time, they kept on falling. They were in a calm state of mind. They were like, okay, we see that food is floating for heaven, right? You're in a calm state of mind. So you're there looking at things in a logical perspective. Number two, repetition. It happened so many times that you're able to see when something happens so many times that it must be that there is a miracle, something going on over here, or there's a giant in heaven that's sprinkling food down on us, exactly the portions that we need and exactly in front of the tent that we need to, that, that we live in. Number uh, four, is do you need some sort of level of expertise over here? Do you need somebody to be like, okay, what you're seeing over here is food. This is what you eat. It was pretty obvious. It fell right in front of their house, and they eat it. And that was it. There was no like, this is food, eat food. I'd be like, okay, thank you. You know, I eat food. Now, it wasn't something that you have to think about it, that it was so difficult to come Right? Food, many people understand, especially Americans, we understand food. We deal usually with food on an hourly basis. Um, And finally, number five, self-interest. There's a self-interest. Maybe there's self-interest. Maybe you want to say, okay, listen, God gave me food. He said, you know, right in front of my tent, he gave me food. And that's what I'm telling you too. Who are they telling us to? Their neighbors who also got food? Or everybody else that they know and they speak to who also had food? Or maybe they're telling this lie to their children. You're like, hey, God send me food from heaven. Like, why, why would you lie to No one in, in the logical perspective would want to knowingly lie to their children. This is something very different in, in the miracle of the month that, that proves also a validity of, of, uh, you know, of the miracles that happen. There is a book called The Bible as History, written by Werner Keller, that says, no, 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 you want to know what really happened? I'll tell you what really happened. He claims like this. He says that there's bushes in the Sinai Desert. These bushes, when they're eaten by ants in the middle of the leaves, there's a sap that oozes out. That sap is both nutritious and sweet. Part of hearty, healthy breakfast. Right? You know, so... He claims that the Jewish people, they ate the sap, they survived, and that's where they got mung that never fell from heaven. It's the sap that, had, that, that they were eating. The questions that you could ask on this is, number one, how come, how come first of all, no, there, there is a, uh, the desert, desert bushes. They're, they're, they're claiming that. There's such things? Yeah, yeah, there's such things, yeah, yeah. So they could claim, and say like, okay, if let's say that did happen, how did eating from bushes translate into food falling from heaven in front of my tent? Like, when, when did that transition come in? You know, it couldn't be right in the beginning because they would have been like, you know, they'll be eating bush, like bush food, right? And they're eating this, this uh, bush's food. And all of a sudden, you know, Moses comes by and be like, hey, guys, listen, uh, this is food from heaven. You know, you're welcome. It, it's not going to happen because they're like, uh, no, Moses, we're eating from a bush. You know, and that's what you're seeing and we're doing. So you can't say the lie right then. But maybe you can say the lie happened 100 years later. But the problem with that is, is that everybody experiences miracle. And... The parents told their children, be like, hey, we ate food from heaven. You know, like, that's crazy stuff. And they said, like, your grandfather ate food from heaven. All of a sudden, you know, if you want to say that it started off as your grandfather ate food from a bush, and your grandfather ate food from the bush, and all of a sudden one person came around and be like, hey, it wasn't a bush, it was heaven. Then everybody would raise their hand, 
metaphorically, because uh, Jews don't raise their hand, right? And uh, they, I'm kidding, we all do. Um, they raise their hand, they say, um, uh, well, I heard the story a little bit differently, you know, uh, my granddaddy, uh, he ate bushes, uh, he ate food from a bush. Uh, where did you, how come your granddaddy ate it from a, uh, southern, obviously, uh, Jews, um, how come your, you know, granddaddy ate it from, you know, from heaven? It doesn't make sense. And if it really did, if there was a really transition in, in the story, we would see different variations of it. We would have some group of Jews that say, we ate bush food, and another group of Jews that say, no, we ate man food. But because we don't have this, this claim is very weak and very unlikely that it is uh, true. Okay, let's, let's finish off with one, uh, one idea. Um, and when I say finish off, I am not saying entirely honest with you, uh, but we're almost, almost finished off. Uh-huh, so we're almost there. Okay, but no, really, really, uh, not, that, not that much longer. Maybe um, uh, 10 to 15 hours. Um, so now, the, the stubborn, you know, when you look at that, the, the idea, you have a stubborn, studious Jew. It really is too. Um, a stubborn, studious Jew. When, can you sell him a miracle? Can you tell him, hey, this is what you saw? Uh, I don't think so. You cannot sell a Jew something that happened. You're going to sell something that didn't happen? That's very, very unlikely. If the Jews accepted that we got the man from heaven, that we got the Torah, and went through all these different rigorous criteria, then it must be that this is true. It must be that it's, you know, it's, it's validated. It, it's, it's, and, and you know what? And well, well, this idea really brings it, uh, brings it forth home. The War of Amalek. There's something very interesting about the War of Amalek. The War of Amalek, it says when Yitro went and he came to the Jewish nation. You know how he came to the Jewish nation? He saw two things. Does anybody know what he saw? Nobody? Okay. Um, I'll give you a hint. Um, and by hint, I'll tell you the answer. Uh, it was, he saw the splitting of the sea and the war of Amalek. He saw those two things. He says, you know what? That's it. I'm joining the Jewish nation. I have a question. Out of all the miracles that happened, Matan Torah, Exodus, everything else that happened, the two that he picked was splitting of the sea, which is good, I get that. And the war of Amalek? I don't understand. What's the war with the war of Amalek? It's just a war. Why would that change his mind into saying, you know what? This is the nation I want to join. This is obviously true. And the answer for that is, is that we look into the way that Baal Yosef goes and explains the war of Amalek. The war of Amalek has five different criteria, five different very odd aspects to the war of Amalek. Number one is that Moses didn't actually fight in the war of Amalek. All the previous wars, he actually fought. He was actually in the front lines, he was fighting. The war of Amalek, he stood on the mountaintop. You know, this is, by the way, the story with the hands up, hands down, right? Right, this, not the wave, right? The hands up, they won, the hands down, they were losing. He sent in, he sent in whatever, his, his, uh, his, his, the rest of the people. To go and fight the war. Moshe was not there. The, um, the, the question is, why wasn't he there? Why wasn't he there? All the other wars, he was there. Why this war did he remove himself? Furthermore, he didn't touch his staff. His staff was not part of the war. It was not part of the war. It was put on the side. All the other wars, he had his staff, his trusty staff with him. That's question number two. Question number three is that... Well, no, I'm up to question number four. I combined two questions, but don't worry about it. Question number three, the or four, depending on it. I combined Moses not being part of it and Moses staying on the sideline. But whatever it is, doesn't matter. We're going to answer all of them anyways. How come this is the only war that the results waver so frequently? If his hands were up, they were winning. Hands are down, losing. Up, winning, down, losing. In no other wars in the Chumash does it speak about that the wars they were so they changed so so drastically. And number five, it was the only time in the history of the Torah, that it speaks about the Moshe was weak. He had, to have, he had to have Aaron and Hur holding up his hands. He couldn't do it by himself. Why then he couldn't hold up his hands? He was so strong, so physically strong. This is the only time that he shows physical debility in, in the Torah. And the answer is, that the Bar Yosef goes and it says that in order to understand this, you have to understand what the Jews were thinking about, what their mindset was before the war. 
And in fact, before the war, the, um, the Jews actually doubted if God is with them. And they said in Exodus chapter 17, verse 7, Is God with us or not? And the question is, why are you asking that? God just did the ten plagues. He did so many miracles, splitting of the sea. He did so many miracles. Why are you really asking if God is with you now? You saw so many things. Why would you doubt it? So the idea behind this that explains about Yosef is that they thought maybe, maybe there's still a possibility, right? Remember, we're stopping people. Maybe Moses did everything. Maybe Moses was such a great magician, so great that he was the one who orchestrated everything. Somehow he was able to do it. Maybe he did it. How do we know that God is with us? So Moses says, oh, you see that? I'm going to withdraw myself from the war and we're going to see how that works. The, and the idea is further, is that you see this, that the Jewish people in Exodus chapter 16 verse 3, they said to Moses, you took us out of Egypt. They didn't say God take us out of Egypt. They said you took us out of Egypt. Furthermore, when they wanted to water in Exodus chapter 17 verse 2, they said, they told Moses, give us water so we can drink. As if Moses is in control of everything and he's the one who's, who who's in charge of the water. They thought at that point in time, explains the Baal Yosef, that Moses was doing everything. So this is, what, what, uh, this, is what, uh, this is how everything was orchestrated to show that Moses was nothing to do with the picture and he pulled himself out. We're in the war of Amalek. All of a sudden what happens? He's not involved in the war. He says, you're going to see, you're going to win the war without me. And he goes and he makes it crystal clear that he, you're going to win the war without him. He's standing on the sidelines. Not only is he standing on the sidelines, he's not, he's not using his trusty staff which so many miracles happen, all the plagues, all the, you know, splitting, so many things happen with the staff, he's not using that for the war. Furthermore, the battle wavers. If his hands are up, it's, they're successful. The hands are down, they're, they're weak. They're, they're losing. So you think, aha, maybe this proves that Moses is in fact doing everything. Because when his hands are up, that shows that he has the power to win us over. But when his hands are down, that means he doesn't have the ability. But then the question is, if he has the power to win, you don't think he has the power to hold up his own hands? Hold, he can't hold up his own, he needs to have two people holding up his hands because he was physically weak from it? And furthermore, what he was doing, what was he doing when he was point, when he was putting up his hands? He was pointing at heaven. He says, you look at heaven. If you have the emunah and bitachon in God, you'll win the war. And this is a very, very important lesson in life. If you have faith and belief in God, you'll be very successful. If you don't have, if you think, if you think everything is up to me, everything is dependent on how much work and effort I put in it, which is true, you do have to put work and effort into it. But if you think the, Bottom line is, depending on what I do, then you're not going to be successful. Moses was saying, forget about how strong you are. Forget about how much of a winning streak that you are. If you look up to heaven, he pointed his hands up. If you go to heaven, if you look up to God, and then when, they, when he pointed up, the Jews looked up to get to heaven, and they saw, you know what, we're only successful because of God, that's when they won. He put his hands down, that's when, uh, that's when they lost. This is the idea that Moshe was, withdrew himself from the war. He's saying, you think it was me? You really think it was me? It has nothing to do with me. He pointed his hands up. It all has to do with God. And when Yisrael heard this, he says, Aha! He says, I see now that it wasn't anything with Moses. This is actually legit. In my time to God, nothing has sold him. You know what sold him? The fact that he knew for a fact that this all came from God and nothing else. This is the beauty of the lesson that we can learn from the, the war of Amalek. And, and by the way, just for a, a side note, we don't believe, even though we're speaking about miracles today, we don't believe in Moses, we don't believe in the Torah because of the miracles. The Rambam says in, in, in Yisodei Torah, chapter 8, he says that we believe in Moses, you know why I believe in Moses? Because we stood at High Sinai and we heard God speak to Moses and say, you know, so on and so forth, all the, all the commandments. That's why we believe, not because we, you know, are somehow, uh, you know, so, so many miracles. Miracles don't prove, don't prove anything except that you know, how to, you know how to do a miracle. Now, for real, this is what we're going to finish off with. To finish off with this idea, that the... Torah speaks. Oh, we're not even that much over. Okay, why are you even complaining, guys? I don't even know why you're complaining. So, <coughs> I don't even know why I bring it up. I should not. Okay. Um, no, I should bring it up. The Torah nonstop brings up any problem, any any sin that the Jewish people do. It's brought out to light. It's brought out to light. This is what they did wrong. Look at the sin of the golden calf. If we made it up, we made up this 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 sin. Why are we? Oh, I'm sorry. We made up this Torah. 
Why would we put the sin of the golden calf in there? Yeah, right after God gave us the Torah, we all sinned. Yeah, we all sucked real bad. We all did something really, really bad. Why would we say that? If we made it up, we would take that out. Furthermore, you have the, the you know, you look at all the, the leaders in the Jewish, uh, you know, nation in history. Uh, let's speak with Abraham. Abraham, he wasn't criticized. He didn't technically do anything wrong. But it does say that he had a son, Ishmael. Why does it have to say that he had a son, Ishmael? Couldn't have been a distant cousin. You know, maybe a neighbor. You know, a nephew, a rogue nephew, you know what I'm talking about? You know, like, why does it have to be a son? It doesn't look good for Abraham Abinu if his son was the one who went off. Granted, Ishmael did tshuva at the end of the day. But then we go to Yitzhak. Yitzhak had to have Esav. Couldn't Esav be, like, also a cousin? You know, maybe, maybe you know, like, you know, a neighbor that was really jealous, red-haired, you know, came from a red-haired family, came from Ireland, you know, I don't know. You know, so something that, you know, why does it have to be a son? Not only that, he chases Yaakov. For the, for his, for, you know, and wanting to kill. So brotherly rivalry, right? You didn't have so much, you know, Shalom Bayit in that situation going on over there. And you have even furthermore, Yitzchak wanted to give the blessings to Esav. It says in the Torah that Yitzchak wanted to bless Esav. Why put that in there? If we're making something up, that's not a really good sell point. You know, you know like all these, all these problems that we're having. And furthermore, Yaakov, after he's running from Esav, who does he go to? He goes to Lavan, the crook. Not only there, he spends 20 years by the crook's house, and he marries two of the daughters. Does he have to marry? Couldn't he marry, you know, the philanthropist of the generation? Let Lavan be a philanthropist, you know? He was going, and he was going, and he was, uh, you know, very successful and everything. The fact that we have all the stories about what he did and, how, and all these things, do we really need that information? If we made it up, does it make sense? You're making something up, you're going to make yourself look good. Even people that don't make something up, they make themselves look good somehow always, you know? Then you come inside, you see a guy with a black eye, you know, and a bro- you know like a bruising, you should have seen the other guy. And I was like, what do you mean? You fell down and you tripped over a tree stump and you're spacing out or texting on your phone. And they're like, what other guy? And they're like, well, you know, like people try to make themselves look good. If you're selling something, if you're making something up, don't you think that the Jewish people will make themselves look good? You look at Moshe. Rabbi Victor Miller explains is not only Moshe is criticized, he's criticized in the worst way possible as if he was rebelling against God. In Bamidbal chapter 20 verse 24, this is talking about the, the hitting of the rock. You know, when he was sitting in the rock, the, you know, the, and, it, and by the way, this sin is, is questionable. What was the sin? There's a question in the commentaries. Is it that he hit the rock, or is it that he called the people? He says, hey, uh, here now you rebels. And by Midbar, in Numbers chapter 20, verse 10, he says, here now you rebels. The, the sin, according, from our perspective, is so small, we're not even sure what the sin is. Yet, because of this, we know in the, in the volume, in Deuteronomy, chapter 32, verse 51, Moshe was punished, he couldn't go to Israel because of this. And we put it so much out into the light. Why do we have to put it in? If Moses made up the Torah, you think he would put himself in like that? Furthermore, we have Aaron. That goes, and he was part of the building of the golden calf. Miriam spoke Lashonara. We're making it up. This is what we're doing. Moshe, why did he have to be from the tribe of Levi? The tribe that killed out Shechem. You know, the tribe, which is also something interesting. You know, the tribe of Levi doesn't have any, um, any land in, in Israel. They have to sit in Ere Miklat. He's from his tribe, and he doesn't, if he's making it up, he should say, okay, the tribe of Levi, we get all the palaces, where the main things, and everybody else works for us. You know, that's what you think that you're part of the family, you're in the family, you know, you're coming in the family, and that's when you're gonna get to, you know, you're in the Levi family, that's when you're gonna, gonna be able to do. You know, but he doesn't do that. Everything is very, very backwards in the opposite way that you would think that would be, um, that would be made up. And, and, you know, uh, you'll give you a few more examples and we'll end. Yeshua. Yeshua went to war against, uh, Yericho, right? Yericho, this is in Yeshua chapter uh, 7 verse 11. They were not allowed to touch any of the spoils. One person by the name of Achan touched the spoils and he did something he shouldn't have done. Because of that, Hashem says, from now on, you're going to lose all the wars moving forward. You're going to lose some of the wars, whatever, moving forward. The question is that, come on, that's pretty good statistics. That's pretty good. All the people didn't touch it. One person out of the entire nation touched it. 
That's pretty good. Like, why is that bad? And not only that, not only does the Torah say it straight out that we did something bad, but she tells us the punishment for it, for it as well. Do we really have to write that Dina was raped? Do we really need that information? If we made it up, would we really say that one of the tribe's sisters got raped? Do we really need that information? Would Yosef get sold by his own brothers? The fact of the story of Tamar and Yehuda, we could easily have skipped that thing over. The Jews are the lowest slaves. We could have owned it. We could have been the real estate managers in, you know, in, in Egypt, and no one would have known the difference. You know, why did we have to be the lowest of the lowest? You look at any other religion. You look at the Quran. Is there anything bad that says about Muhammad? The answer is no. There's nothing bad. He's, just, he's pictured as a saint. Jesus, did he ever do anything bad? No. Even the bad thing that he does, they twist it into something doing good. Yet the Torah, numerous times, says the faults of the leaders, faults of the nation. You know why? Because we're not politically correct. We're not looking for make somebody feel good. We're here to tell you the truth. And this is what happened. This is what gets written. And that's the way it is. The only, the only time and way that that's going to happen is if it's true and if it's not made up. This is another, yet another numerous proof that we have that the Torah not only was, was completely true and was given by God, but we see that we had no, no part of it in changing it. Because if we would, we would have changed all these things. Any questions? Yes. Um, the Torah was written by, was dictated to Moshe by God, right? Correct. So does that mean the Torah should, everything in the Torah should be perfect and complete and there shouldn't be any mistakes in it? Correct. So, okay, so I have a friend who's, I don't say off the there, she's like completely off there. Mm-hmm. So she was like arguing this with me and she, she said that there are sources for things that are wrong in the Torah, but are actually if you know any examples, send it. Okay, I'm going to give a whole. I'll try to answer now, but I'm going to give a whole class on Bible criticism that I do plan so on saying. Yeah, go she, ahead. One of the things she's. I wrote down because I was like, tell me because I need to. Okay. So one of the things is that um, that the circumference of a circle, the measurements are given in the Torah, but they're not the same as the actual. The pi radius is given, it's not given in the Torah, it's given in a hint, and it is accurate. The pi circumference. It's not. They, in the Torah, it's rounded to three. And actually, it's three point one four, whatever pi. So Which is so it is it's correct. Rounded. It's rounded. So if it's why would it be rounded if it's supposed to be percent? That doesn't show that it's incorrect. That just shows that it's rounded. Rounded is still correct number. So, so she was saying, why is why is it why is it a perfect number? Why you know how long pi goes to? Yeah. Infinity. It goes. It keeps on going on and on. So what, what the Torah is supposed to say at all? This, be, the whole book is going to be a book of pi. It doesn't make, you know, rounded, even, even the statistics number, so it's what, 3.14 if I'm not mistaken, for pi? That's rounded. Why does it 3.4, whatever it is, you know, da 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 da. That doesn't show that it's wrong, in fact, that shows that it's true. Because, you know, you round something, that's fine, but look at how they have the number now that they only found statistically, uh, not statistically, mathematically, you know, recently. I think her point was that, like, they, they, now it's more precise because they didn't have the math back then that whoever wrote the Torah. Because you're rounding something off and you don't give the additional decimal places afterwards does not mean that they didn't know it. It means they didn't write it. But that does not show that they didn't. If they would have said 4.154, then I would say, yeah, that's that's a pretty big error. But the fact that it's the same exact number, but it's not round, it's not continuous number, it continues for a really long time, Pi. There was one sort of genius that kept on going on and on about it, on on the numbers that go on after Pi. So it's not a number that you would expect anybody to ever write it down fully. Even science doesn't write it down fully. In the, I believe it's in Sukkah. For for the yeah, if I'm not mistaken, I have to look it up. But there was there's an. Could be. I have to look it up. It's possible. I have to look it up. Excellent question. Was, uh, oh, that's like an unanswered question. I thought it was a better, better question. Okay, um, he's saying that the sun was stopped and not the Earth stopped the rotation around the sun. 
Yeah, because they. I have to look at the text. That's such an easy answer. Oh, that's what she. If I prove that to her, she's become religious. Have her come to class once. I'll gladly debate her. Oh. If she wants, we can make a class just for her questions. I've done that before. If people, just her questions. Oh my gosh. Yeah, just her questions. I'll gladly do that. I have a ball with it. Everybody's invited. Yeah, it'll be a Thursday class. I would more than happy. I take this challenge. Any day of the week. Oh, I, I'll take. I love. I, I, I enjoy. I tell you, I enjoy those things. She also heard this. There's this belief that there were first 72 different gods that were. Conjoined together, and that's where the idea of one God. Please let her come. <laughs> I will, you know. I, you know how many debates I had with people. This it's enjoyable. It really is. You guys will enjoy it too. It's fun. Seventy different gods. Are these are the virgins that the, the Muslims got. No, no, no relation. I don't know. I would love. Let her come. Oh. Yeah, there's no answer to craziness. Um, but um, yeah, Grant, I tell her to prepare everything and bring it. Bring it up. I, I would. Uh, I would greatly. I would greatly do it. Whenever she comes, well, we'll do it. You have to let me know beforehand so I know not to prepare for the the current thing. Yeah. Any other questions? Any other questions oh, on camera? Okay, go. Um, all the time they worship like Yashkar Muhammad, they worship them almost like God, or pretty much they do worship them like God. But So, yeah, they're not going to say anything bad about someone they worship like God, but we don't say anything bad about Hashem either. It's true we don't say anything bad about Hashem either because we cannot say anything bad because of a, of a perfect being. Muhammad was not a perfect, he, he's a prophet. Prophets make mistakes. Um, Jesus, for example, true they worship him like God, but he did very, very contradicting things according to the Torah. And the answers that they give is a very weak answer. Uh, yeah, Jesus is above the Sabbath, so he doesn't have to, uh, that's not an answer. It's like somebody that's like, shoot somebody, and like, I'm above the law, I can shoot whoever I want. No, you can't. You know, that does, that, that, that's not like, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, okay, so go ahead, shoot whatever you want. So it still, you know, doesn't answer the question. It still has, the, they did conflicting things, especially since they say the Torah is true, and it's legitimate, and then they completely, you know, like 100%, you know, conflicts with what they're saying as well. Also, what's the literal meaning of the word not? I can say please, yeah. Then why does Moshe say Shemunahamon? Because like, even even when you're giving rebuke, you have to give it in a nice way. Even your even um, um, who was it? Your, you know, whenever it was at Moshe, uh, no, it was Yaakov. Yaakov, when he gave a rebuke to the people in the in the shepherds, he said, "Achai, my brothers." You give them in a nice. You give always rebuke in a nice way. Any other questions on camera? No other questions. Okay, Chazak Baruch. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.